Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about David Hume. David Hume was a philosopher who was part of the uh, Enlightenment period uh, out of Scotland. He's actually considered one of the big names in the Enlightenment philosophers out of Scotland and influential to all of the Enlightenment thinkers uh, that preceded him and thinkers up through this day. Hume was one of the, uh, in the tradition of the empiricists. So with the English-speaking empiricists, we basically had Francis Bacon, John Locke, and then David Hume. And David Hume sort of goes a little bit farther with his empiricism than his predecessors and does some of the things that they do, but also kind of expands on it a little bit. Uh, One of the things that empiricists deny is that we're born with any ideas. We don't have innate ideas born uh, that we're born with. Everything comes from our experiences. Everything comes from our interactions with the outside world. And so one of the things at the start that Hume does is try to show how all of our ideas are simply products of things that we have seen, heard, uh, smelled, felt, etc., and that none of them uh, exist until we're exposed to them. Uh, even things like mathematics, um, you know, the the uh, solid foundations of mathematics, two plus two equals four. This is not something we're born knowing. This is something we are taught, and so we learn these things from our experiences with the outside world. Um, this again counters. Plato, who claimed that all of our ideas are already there and just need to be brought out and expanded upon. The way that he kind of separates uh, ideas, and he separates ideas from impressions. Uh, Impressions are our physical interaction with our environment. What we see, what we smell, what we touch, what we hear, those are impressions, and those are much more vivid. Ideas are what happen to those impressions when they're in our minds, when we're thinking about them, when we're dreaming about them, when we're you know, writing about them, whatever we're doing. So the impressions are our direct contact with nature. Uh, our ideas are what the mind does with those. And one of the ways that Hume talks about uh, how things go from being impressions to being ideas is he splits it up into three ways that we deal with these ideas. Uh, The first way we deal with these ideas, um, I'm sorry, with these impressions and turn them into ideas, uh, is what he calls resemblance. Uh, Resemblance is when we have seen something before and so we can make the connection. Uh, when we see something similar. Uh, We know what a tree is because we've seen trees before. Before we saw a tree, though, we would have no idea what a tree was. Um, There would be no way really to describe, with the exception of, you know, giving other sense, you know, perceptions people have had, the colors, the shapes, things like that, to describe a tree to someone. But most people, unless you live in the desert or the plains, you've seen a tree. Uh, And so when you see another tree or another bush, 
it resembles it. And so once we've learned, oh, this is tree, we can put all things in category of tree that look like that. Now as our experience of the world expands, as our understanding of the world expands, you might have people that can recognize different types of trees. Uh, for example, someone, once they know the general traits of a maple tree and the general traits of a willow tree, will not only be able to, you know, put it into the category of tree when they see one, they'll be able to put it into the category of, oh, this is a maple tree, or oh, this is a willow tree, because of resemblance. Uh, so this this habit that we have is sort of uh, this or I should say this ability that we have starts early as we start experiencing things and as we start experiencing things that are similar to them um, we start classifying them together the other uh, way that we sort of process this information is what's called contiguity and this is where we notice things being usually next to each other an easy example to explain this would be uh, the ocean and the shoreline. We always see the ocean and the shoreline, unless you're viewing it from the middle of the ocean, you view them as being next to each other. So you kind of have the idea that these two things connect. If you see a bird in a tree, uh, you kind of get the idea, especially when you see it multiple times, that, oh, birds and trees are in some ways connected, or they nest there. The other way that we process the uh, impressions into ideas is through cause and effect. Now, cause and effect thinking is where we see one thing happen or be present, and then right after that, something else occurs. And there's a, the natural leap that the one thing caused the other. Now, if it's only one time, we might not make that connection. But as this gets repeated, as we see it happen over and over again, we start to make the connection. Uh, if I let go of something and it falls to the floor, I might not connect that letting go of it made it fall. But when I've dropped lots of things and I've seen other people drop lots of things, I automatically connect letting go with falling. So I'm looking at it in cause and effect. And... Hume didn't really go into this, but later thinkers go into the fact that, you know, cause and effect is something that is present even in lower animals that can learn. Now, if the animals can't learn, they don't have much cause and effect thinking. Um, cause and effect thinking is where you realize, if I do this, I get this result. Um, you know, if I touch this fire, it burns my hand. I get this result every time. That's cause and effect thinking. If we didn't have cause and effect thinking, you would stick your hand in the fire every single time. And you would never be able to connect the fact that why my hand is hurting is because I keep sticking it into the fire. So cause and effect, cause and effect thinking is very critical to how we view the world. Hume is a skeptic, though. One of his... Uh, major ideas is that even though we have these ways of processing the world, we have no guarantee that we're processing the world correctly or that we are understanding what's going on. So even though we have cause and effect and we see it happening over and over again, we have no guarantee that it will always happen or that the one thing does indeed cause the other. Uh, and so we're sort of left in this position where we can't have absolute certainty. Uh, 
And this is where a lot of philosophers, uh, especially later ones, have kind of drifted into being, um, you know, into, into the idea that, well, you know, everything is relative, so nothing is really solid and there's no foundation. Uh, Hume doesn't drift into this, and Hume doesn't believe we should drift into this, because Hume sort of brings up the world we live in, the natural world we live in. Um, we don't have the ability to just completely dismiss this stuff and think any idea is as good as any other. For example, uh, eating bread is, you know, equally good for me as eating um, sawdust. You know, th these are things that are not equal. Why? Because if we have experiences with them over and over again and we find out we eat sawdust, we get sick, we eat bread, we get full and feel better and have energy, uh, we start to develop probabilities. And this is what Hume talks about, how we have to kind of look at the world. Uh, all ideas are not equal. Some outcomes are more probable than others. And so as we you know, look at the world, though we never get absolute certainty, we do get higher and higher degrees of probability. Um, this is something that, again, as I said, when you get into 20th, 21st century, uh, some of the philosophers, some of the thinkers, um, they try to dismiss all of this and, and say we're at a point where everything is arbitrarily, you know, and there's no way of proving anything is better than anything else. Hume would definitely reject this. Even though he's a skeptic, he does put forward the idea that some ideas are better than others. Um, one of the things that also comes from this is what's known as the inductive fallacy. Uh, with deduction, um, deductive logic, we've talked about this a little in the past, um, you have, if the premises are correct and if the form of the argument is true, or the form of the argument is correct and the premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. The conclusion has to follow. An example often used is 2 plus 2 equals 4 because of what the meaning of 2, the meaning of plus, the meaning of equals, and the meaning of 4. As long as we've set that up correctly, um, that is deductive logic that gets us to that answer. Inductive logic is what we have to decide things that are not able to be decided like that. Um, and most of the decisions of our life are inductive. We never have all of the information. And so we have to, based on the information we have, make an assumption. Uh, for example, every day that I've been alive, the sun has rose. Um, and as far back as I've read in histories, every day everyone else has been alive, the sun has rose, has risen, sorry. Um, and so it's a very high probability that tomorrow the sun will rise again. But we don't have any proof. We don't have any way to be 100% certain of that. The inductive fallacy basically states that just because everything has always been a certain way does not mean it will continue to be a certain way. Um, we may just have been in some odd streak where this kept happening and then tomorrow the laws of physics aren't what they think we are, they are and all of a sudden it doesn't happen anymore. So the inductive fallacy really is there to show that 
there is no certainty. But again, with Hume, he doesn't want you to just go, well, can't do anything then because I can't make any concrete decisions. You know, Hume does this as sort of a way of making you be careful, uh, causing you to, or, you know, have, having you think about what you do and look at the evidence more and more closely. And the more you do this, the better your outcomes are going to be. So this is not a way of just saying, well, just give up because we can't have certainty anyways. This is a way of saying, you know, keep analyzing, keep looking, um, keep checking your answers. Uh, keep making sure that this, these things are working. And if you think about it, this is a lot of what the scientific method is about. Uh, the scientific method is something that constantly challenges an idea and says, okay, is there some way that I can disprove this idea? And what are the evidences that prove that this idea is true? So Hume is kind of doing that on a, you know, a level that covers all of life, not just science. Um, these, the reasons we have the beliefs we have, for the most part, Hume says, is based on custom and habit. Um, and this comes from the cause and effect thinking. This comes from the resemblance. This comes from the contiguity. You know, we always see certain things together. We always see the, you know, the shore near the sea. So we always will assume that that's going to be together. Uh, we see birds in trees all the time. So we assume there will be birds in trees. Um, not all the time, but a great deal of the time. You know, we always see certain things happen after some other event happens. So we assume that these things will be happening all the time. This becomes our custom. We're, our custom is we see this as always happening. We see these things as always together. So we make the assumption that they always will be. Uh, we have no proof, though. But again, we have to live our lives. We have to get up every day. We have to do things. And so without these customs and habits, uh, we wouldn't even be able to function. If we just sat there and waited for absolute certainty, nothing would ever get done. Uh, Hume also takes aim at religion. Um, one of the things that he has a problem with is that for him, there's nothing that's been proven about religion. There are no proofs for God. There are no proofs for, um, you know, anything in the scriptures that hold up to scrutiny. Um, there's custom, there's tradition, there's the habit of believing these things, but there's no way of testing these things. And so one of Hume's radical stances is that if we can't test it, we may as well just throw the whole idea out. Uh, if there's no way of knowing whether it's true or not, in Hume's mind, this is a completely worthless idea. You can see where Hume's ideas would really challenge a lot of later philosophers, um, both empiricists, uh, idealists, both religious philosophers and atheistic philosophers. Um, he challenges them because the religious philosophers want to be able to say no, we don't have to, we're not going to throw away the idea of God and religion because we can't prove it. And one of the um, big influences that Hume had was on Kant. Um, Kant, in his attacks, and we'll get to Kant in a later episode, um, wants to kind of attack the same way that Hume did 
you know, scientific knowledge, our knowledge of the world through the senses, and he kind of calls all of this into question. And then Kant sort of makes this leap from there that since we don't have any absolute certainty on these things, um, then religious belief is equally valid. Uh, and so that starts a whole lot of other uh, arguments back and forth that go into the 20th and the 21st century. Okay, I'm going to break off on Hume. We will cover Hume in later seasons. We're going to cover all of these topics, all of these writers and thinkers, and a lot more in more depth. But I do just kind of want in this first season to give you some basics. Okay, I hope all of you are doing well. I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.